0: Uh, last week, so last week we opened our study of the book of Revelation, looking at chapter one, particularly focusing on John's introduction, in which he presents this as a, this book as a revelation of Jesus Christ, a prophetic account uh, in which Christ is both the revealer and the substance of the one, uh, the substance of what's being revealed. Um, We noted John's repeated call to not only hear the words uh, that um, he proclaims here, but to heed them, to put them into action, to spur us uh, in these churches uh, in Asia Minor into action in the midst of present and future trials. And then chapter one ends with this stunning vision that John has of Christ, which emphasizes Christ's role um, as priest, um, speaking in the midst of uh, the lampstands, which signifies uh, or puts us in the temple, and um, who John describes using the words from the book of Daniel as the Ancient of Days, which um, symbolizes God's coming as judge. And we ended last week thinking about the church's role as lampstand, um, which is, we talked about was an Old Testament sign of the eternal light of God's presence and a New Testament symbol of our need to bear witness uh, of the eternal light of Christ letting our light shine before men. So today we begin a section where Jesus uh, turns to the specific um, churches that he's in the midst of here. um, Addressing uh, these um, seven particular churches and by proxy addressing us. Again, these seven churches are intended to serve um, uh, as proxies for the church universal. So through these individual churches, um, we should see ourselves. And I want us um, to start, I'm going to give you a question and think about through the entire lesson today. So um, we're going to come back to this question at the end. But this is a question um, I've been thinking about um, this week. And um, I want us to think about both uh, this week and next as we look at these uh, letters. So what would Jesus write in a letter to Redeemer Church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Concord, Massachusetts? So that's, so we're going to come back to that question again at the end of class and sort of talk about it, but as we read uh, the letters in chapter 2 and talk about them, that's what I want you to be thinking about, Um, thinking about what would Christ say uh, to us. All right, so let me uh, read uh, chapter two. I'll read um, the entirety of the chapter and we'll discuss the letters in turn, but I want you to get a sense of, rather than read them individually, get a sense of the pattern that's repeated through each of these so you see, both see the pattern but also see the differences uh, of the address to each particular church. Okay, so Revelation chapter two. which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken into pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Okay, so uh, in that, you you might have seen some repeated phrases and things. Each letter sort of follows a pattern. Um, Most of them have seven sections that we're not gonna get into the specifics of. But one thing each of the letters has is, um, it starts with Christ's self-description. And that self-description of Christ draws upon that vision we encountered in chapter one that vision John has of Christ. So to start off, and I want to suggest as we go through the letters that each um, aspect of Christ being presented is being presented for a specific reason. It's not just that, you know, slapping, oh, we'll use this title this time. I want to suggest that the particular self-revelation of Christ to each church relates to the message that Christ is giving that particular church. So each particular image that is being presented at the beginning of each uh, letter is is tied to the message, uh, the subject of the message that Christ is addressing that church. So what is, um, so to start off with the church in Ephesus, um, what aspect of self description does Christ use in addressing the church at Ephesus? And what does this this particular image mean? So how does Christ identify himself? to Ephesus okay so that part of John's vision last week um, that you know John started off by having this picture of uh, this voice and, and he sees the son of man in the midst of these seven golden lampstands so what did we say the seven golden lampstands so the seven churches and why lampstands in particular did we talk about last week The light. And what does the light mean? Or what? The light means God, and why is the churches Okay. So why is God... Why are the churches identified as these uh, holders of God's light? Yeah, to bear witness. Um, So here we have this letter uh, to the church of Ephesus starting off with this idea of Christ... Um, in the midst of the churches who are whose duty is to bear witness. Um, so keep that in mind, because I think that helps uh, uh, understand some things about this Ephesian church. So in each one of these, well not all of them, um, in most of the letters, uh, there's a, a description of what the church is doing well and what the church is not doing well. So, um, so what is the church in Ephesus being commended for? Yeah, I've been thinking about what this means. Um, And how angels function generally in the book of Revelation. And maybe this is something we can talk about more. But just to maybe hit on it a little here. Um, What I think uh, is being, um, uh, what's being really emphasized here is what do you think of when you think of angels, generally? Messengers, okay. So messenger, protector, but what else, I mean... Do we see any angels around here? We think otherworldly. And to sort of think of churches having not just a this world presence, but again, John's trying to stretch our imagination to see not just the church visible, but to think of the church invisible. And to think of um, a church, uh, one way is to sort of think of a church you know, the church that John's addressing in Ephesus here, in one sense, it's the same church that Paul's addressing to the Ephesians. But in another sense, it's a different church because it's different people. Um, you, know, the, you know, two different time periods. Times lapse. People in that church when Paul's speaking, generations come, generations died off. Some of them are still there, but new ones. To sort of, sort of think of um, churches. As having an identity that transcends one individual's lifespan. Um, so, I mean, that's my basic. When I see Angel, it's, it's cluing up this is a, messenger, a message to the messengers of these churches that, that have a lifespan beyond any one singular person. Uh, again, to sort of think of this as um, he's addressing both particular and universal church. I thought I saw a hand. Again, um, we'll, we'll have to, I, I want us to think about angel as in the book, so that, that's certainly an, an option. I, I want us to sort of think of it, um, I think as I've read through Revelation, when, when John's talking about angels a lot of times, he's sort of talking about um, both a heavenly and an earthly realm. And to sort of think of these things as being connected. And one of the ways we see them connected is the presence of the angels. So to see them on a continuum um, and to see churches on a continuum rather than as sort of discrete. Yeah, this is, and, and to sort of think of these um, more than, or, you know, letters maybe, uh, you know, we have a different concept of letters. Maybe the genre we should think of them more is Old Testament prophetic speech. Uh, to sort of think of it in those terms. this is These are prophetic words being spoken to these churches. Not all of them in those churches are going to have the ears to respond. The Spirit is going, you know, he who has ears, let him hear. Like, I mean, again, we, we mentioned last week um, that, that um, those words in Isaiah 6, you know, that people are going to see and not see. They're going to hear and not hear. You need to hear. You need to heed the words of, of this message. Okay, so back to what's the church in Ephesus doing well? What are they commended for? Yeah, they, they're, uh, we have mentions of people. So they're not tolerating wicked men. You've got false apostles coming, and they're able to discern that... These guys aren't apostles. This isn't God's message. Um, what else would we say about them? Yeah, they, they're, they're being faithful. They're enduring hardships. They're not relinquishing the testimony that's been given to them. They're staying faithful. Yeah, they're, you know it's work to maintain um, this kind of, of purity, and yet they haven't grown weary of this kind of labor. Yeah, that um, these particular, particular um, uh, uh, group of teachings, the Nicolaitans, um, which we'll come back to when we get to Pergamum, we get a little more um, sense of who these people are. Um, but basically to sort of think of a, uh, these are people who seem to be teaching um, that, it's, uh, that some degree of participation in the idolatrous culture around them is okay. So it's all right, you know, to do certain things that are considered immoral, um, that's okay. Uh, you know, it's not gonna compromise the core of your Christianity, and the church's emphasis is rejecting this kind of uh, compromise with the idolatrous culture around it. So this is a church that, I mean, if we are to sort of put a label on it, this is the church that is holding right doctrine. This is the church that is being faithful to police its boundaries of purity. So, what's wrong in Ephesus? Okay, they've lost this this passion uh, for Christ. They've 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 um, abandoned the love they had at first. You know, it's sort of to sort of think of it as you know, um, or one way we might be think of this as sort of like a. Uh, marriage relationship or something you know, all this passion at the beginning and then <laughs> where's the passion later on um, so what does that mean how have they abandoned their first love I mean they're, they're enduring patiently they're bearing up for Christ's namesake they haven't grown weary they're testing everyone who comes to them they're holding purity right doctrine Churchianity. Give us a definition of church churchianity. Okay, so, you know, priding themselves on, you know, all the things the church is doing, um, but not focusing on Christ. Um, to, to care about God and other people. And um, I think it's interesting to think about this in terms of, all right, So is this legalism, you know, policing of people's behaviors and things? But notice that he condemns them um, for do the works you did at first. Um, You know, it has this emphasis on returning to the things they were doing. So what are, so if we think about uh, love for Christ, churchianity, legalism, What is this church not doing? Because it seems to be, they seem to be condemned by Christ in this letter for works they're not, no longer performing. Things they had once done when they were full of love for Christ, that now that that love has waned in some ways, they're no longer doing. Evangelism. I I think you're absolutely right, Um, which is why I think he starts off with this emphasis on Christ as speaking to these lampstands, the Christ in the midst of the lampstands, emphasizing the church's role at witness. This is an introverted church, a church that's turned in on itself, that is policing its own boundaries, maintaining its own purity, but at the neglect of ministering to people outside. Um, I think you're absolutely right that this is a church that um, that has turned in on itself. Um, uh, I had a missions professor in seminary, um, Paul Long, who used to, I, I can't remember which is which, he used to talk about the sodality and modality of the church. So I'm going to probably completely get his which one applies to which backwards. But I, I still remember the picture he drew. So he draw the picture of the, the modality of the church as a vertical line. A church is supposed to uh, help maintain individual Christians' relationship with God, um, to, to to police its boundaries, to maintain doctrinal purity. But a church also has sodality. So notice he drew it in a the cross there. So one is that, you know, emphasizing that sort of internal relationship in the church, but the church is also has to be outward. Um has to be reaching out. That's what a healthy church is. It's a church that both does what the Ephesians are They're praised for their doctrinal purity. It's not as if their doctrinal purity or hating the works of Nicolaitans is a bad thing because we're going to see two churches later that people condemn for, how can you let these people be comfortable in your midst? So, I mean, we don't want to think of doctrinal purity as a bad thing, but it's not the only thing. Uh, I think John say. they have one aspect of what a healthy church should be like, but they're lacking in this outreach. They're they've turned in on themselves. You have a problem, I've guessing. <laughs> yeah, and to sort of think, and that's why I was trying to sort of emphasize the um, uh, the continuum of a church, um, and to sort of you know to, to think about it's got to be a, a constant effort because. You know, let's face it, the people in this room are not going to be the same people of Redeemer Church 25 years from now. Might not be the same people 10 years from now. You know, we get, even, I've only been here three and a half years. There's been a lot of changeover in that three and a half years. What? It's not the same as 14 years ago. Absolutely. Um, And to sort of think about, uh, churches have to have an identity that goes beyond you know, just the individual people in it. And so the individuals have to commit to the community. Um, I, I started off with that question, of the question I want you to be thinking about, you know, throughout today. You know, what would Christ say to Redeemer Presbyterian Church of Concord? And when, earlier in the week when I was first phrasing it, uh, I phrased phrase it, what, what would Christ say in a letter to you? But then I realized this is collective. Uh, this is a collective interest that... Um, that Jesus is showing in these communities, not just the individuals residing in those communities, but communities as a whole. I saw another hand, see? Yeah, so that warning that that Christ gives there. I also, um, while you have passages out, um, this is another one I sort of thought of in relationship. This is from Matthew 24, 12 to 14, talking about the last days. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I mean, think about you know, the, um, the difficulty of stressing, I mean, think of the difficulty in our age of stressing sexual purity in the midst of a culture that promotes sexual freedom. How weary that is to keep, you know, I've got to say this again, <laughs> and again, and nobody's listening. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be pro- proclaimed throughout the world, the whole world, as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So again, that that connection between um, uh, maintaining one's faithfulness but also having that witness to the world uh, and it can be wearing to sort of hold to keep this message of of, of doctrinal purity, of moral purity, in a world that rejects those things. Like, yeah, and to use the um, you know the analogy you started off with of how that manifests, because I think John's saying it's not just the love that's manifested, but the works that accompany that love. And you know, to use your analogy of all the sort of little things that one does at the beginning of a romance or at the beginning of a relationship. Um, You know, to to sort of think of the zeal um, that, uh, you know, you really want to demonstrate that love. Um, And and even though they're still doing, you know, good things, it's those sort of zealous kind of works uh, that are are lacking. Um, Well, I mean, again, to sort of, he's removing, you know, if they're not going to witness, he's going to remove the light, you know, the lampstand you know, if you're not going to use it <laughs> take away uh, you know, the witness will pass to someone else <laughs> um, no and again, think of it not in terms of individual but collective, you know, the church has to continue to witness it, it, you know, you've got to continue to be a light or, you know, I'm going to snuff, if you're not going to use the light I'm going to give you I'm going to snuff it out and you know, someone else will have to bear that light uh, but again, I, I'm glad you brought that out because, you know, it's to sort of think about what specifically does it mean to abandon their love. I, that's why I want to push this to go back to um, Lynn's, You know, is it evangelism? You know, the, the the symbol that's being used here is the symbol of light and witness, and so I think that closely relates to what it means for them to lose their love. They no longer have this zeal to witness for Christ. They they've sort of turned in on themselves. They're doing all the doctrinal purity things, but they're no longer bearing testimony. Yeah, they they're so concentrated on, you know, you know keeping the, the, the boundaries tight that they're they're not being salty in the earth anymore. Yeah, you don't go out and evangelize if you don't really love and belief um, that's what leads to work yeah yeah okay I'll, I'll buy that yeah we have a great tendency to compartmentalize church um, you know churches when we're here and doing these things and you know I think what John is really or Christ through John is emphasizing to these churches is that's got to go out uh, you got to take that out uh, you know, church isn't just what happens in one place at one time. You know, keeping the false teaching out, policing the pulpit, um, having uh, disciplining one's members, but, you know, uh, as, as Jerry says, taking it out. And that makes, uh, and to think about, you know, uh, that makes sense in terms of what they do well. You know, they love the scriptures, obviously, because they know them and can discern them and to think about well, you're benefiting from that think of all the good you're getting from that what happens if that's not there? you're in the position your neighbor's in you know, to, to, I think you're absolutely right in, in a, how these two things are related you know, if you really do these things and understand the benefit that you're receiving from having the light of Christ's presence you know, it gives you a great sense of the darkness For those who don't have it. Yeah, and to think of, uh, and we'll see the sort of internal divisions within uh, churches, um, especially churches uh, three, four, and five. We'll see, uh, and to sort of, you know, I hate doing literary stuff, but there's there's a chiastic structure. So, you know, the churches, the worst churches are at the end. The best two churches are just inside, and then these sort of compromising churches are in the middle. So, you know, sort of have a little structure here. Um, but we see in those compromising churches, we really see this sort of, some are good, some are bad. The ones on the end are painted with a little more sort of broad, broad. We don't get the sense of that internal dissension as much as we do with some of those internal ones. All right, well, let's move to our church in Smyrna. Um, and, uh, and just a To throw out another part of our pattern. Holy cow. (laughs) Not going to get as far as I thought. Um, So to to think about uh, at the end of this, and um, uh, James mentioned this sort of the the promise at the end, uh, the tree of life. So the introduction to each one of those letters points back to John's introduction to the book. The end of each of these letters points to the end of the book of Revelation. So we're going to have um, later on uh, this semester when we get to um, Revelation 22, we're going to see the tree of life. So in each of these letters, there's a drawing on John's first vision and ending with pointing to the visions John's going to have at the end of the book. So just sort of think of these letters, again, as the book of Revelation in brief. Um, So they're both sort of, they're they're tying the entirety of of John's message. Um, Sometimes you get these letters sort of segmented off from the rest of the book of Revelation. I want to emphasize that these are getting to the heart of the book of Revelation. Um, And he's pointing both to the beginning of the letters, uh, or the beginning of the book of Revelation in each of these letters and to the end. Okay, so uh, so what's the situation in the church in Smyrna? What's going on in this church's life? One of the good ones, <laughs> if we want to label it that way out. Okay, so it's a church uh, undergoing persecution and tribulation. What else would we say about the church in Smyrna? Yeah, so here's a church undergoing persecution already. I know your tribulation. Um, I know the slander. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. So it's a church that's already been undergoing these things, and he's, he's warning them that they're about to suffer more. Yeah, it's about to get worse. Um, what else would we say about the Smyrna church? Uh, yeah, there's no condemnation, strictly praise. He says they're rich even though they're poor. Um, and again, this, is a, this should be something um, we, we are familiar with in the New Testament, sort of emphasizing that, look, the world considers you poor, but think of the riches you possess, you're rich. Um, and uh, just to give another passage that that sort of describes um, the Christian life this way. Um, Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, um, chapter 6, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Um, so this idea that, you know, the, the riches of Christ are more than, uh, you know, the earthly standards by which people are judged. Come here. Uh, verse 9. Um, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, that part, or the, the second part. The slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Um, and this is getting... Um, I, I, I tried. I wanted to get right in the book, so I didn't do a lot of introductory stuff last week. But maybe this is a point to sort of give a little more context. So up to this point, the Christian church has not undergone much tension from the Roman Empire at large because they've fallen under the blanket of protection that comes by being Jews. Um, Jewish, the Jewish religion, the Romans accepted, because it was an ancient faith, They got special privileges, and one of those privileges was not having to sacrifice to the emperor as a religious action. At this moment, the Jews are starting to say, look, these people are not Jews. This is a new sect. So you have, um, uh, and what I think it's, it's saying here, or it's pointing to the condition of Jews bringing Christians to the attention of the Roman Empire, saying, look, these people are a new sect. They're not Jews. They're violating the law. Go get them. Um, So that's one way to sort of read it, is that it's talking about um, uh, Jews or people who say they're Jews, you know, but they're not. They're showing themselves to be synagogues of Satan because they're they're bringing the Romans to persecute you know the true Israel, the church. Um, another way to read it is to, to sort of think of um, maybe it's addressing the people who in order to not be persecuted are sliding back into Judaism. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if I'm by that one, but that's another explanation that uh, again, Judaism, protected Christianity not so if you're a Christian who's coming under the you know the boot of the Roman Empire, wait I don't have to sacrifice to the Empire really I'm a Jew um, so but that's you know we, we, whether uh, let's see how to say this? Uh, I don't think it matters which way we read that, but to understand that I think that's what it's addressing, that um, the the cooperation between certain groups of people claiming to be Jews in this persecution of Christians. And we're in a period where, from the Roman perspective, they are becoming aware of Christianity as something distinct from Judaism. And therefore... um, no longer has that blanket of an ancient religion's protection. Yeah, and to, and I think it, it to to say the Jews um you know themselves sort of look, these you know it's the same way we do you know like any time you know some cult something does something on television and you know my mother asks is that what your group believes <laughs> you, know, you know how you sort of like differentiate and, and I think that's the Jews are doing that no that's you know, this following Christ that's not us to the Roman Empire that's they're new they're bad go get them yeah, and to, again, to how the the how Christ is introduced in each letter connects to the message. So here in a message encouraging, and as we, what's encouraging about saying you know, persecution's about to to steep up, and um, some of you're going to die. What's in, the encouragement comes from that point, starting off with this picture of Christ, the first and last. You know, Christ is eternal. Christ died and rose again. And notice how it ends. Uh, you, know, you know, That the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And, and we probably won't go into the second death. But again, that's pointing to something that's going to be talked about later in Revelation. But it's this idea that um, the encouragement comes, don't fear those who can kill the body, fear the one that kills body and soul. Yeah, we're, it, it, and it's starting to happen in the Roman, you know, it's it's moving from being, I mean, most of the persecution we see in Acts is sort of local persecution. We're starting to see sort of more systematic. Right at the beginning of the second century, you're starting in, in Roman imperial correspondence, what do I do about Christians? Um, there's a famous uh, letter, I think it's by Tacitus, sort of. Uh, or Testus records it Um, you know know, he's collected a document there's a famous letter by a Roman governor in uh, Asia Minor saying what do I do with these Christians Um, and sort of soliciting uh, officials so right at the beginning of this era there hasn't been an official Roman policy toward these people it's starting to come you know and it starts off with more sort of a don't ask don't tell po- policy you know uh, don't go looking for them but if they stick their necks out um, and then it moves to a more systematic kind of persecution but these early persecution is uh, people visibly being identified as Christian so which testifies to go back to um, what Bill said there's nothing um, or there's no negative condemnation in this letter. Um, part of their faithfulness is, is being shown by the fact that they are being persecuted. And the churches that follow, you know, um, that we're not gonna get to today, but um, next week, uh, you know, they're gonna be really called to the, to the mat for compromising, you know, doing all these things to uh, escape notice, to fit in, um, to not stick out to the extent where the law comes down on you. <laughs> I'm sure there's some significance. <laughs> um, otherwise it wouldn't be there. Um, I'm not exactly sure what the 10 days. Um, and again, it's you know we've got the particular and the universal in these letters. and we can um, I don't want to end sort of talking about some of the universal, but um, is the ten days talking about something particular in the life that this church is going to experience, or is it something to the larger church? Yeah, I don't know. We can think about that. But um, let's just let's end. I just want to sort of get so you know, we've got two churches so far. We're gonna get more. But Christ's letter to Redeemer Presbyterian Church Concord, Massachusetts, what is that letter? Let's I mean we can flesh it out more in coming weeks, but let's let's want to hear some thoughts on what does that letter look like. <laughs> <laughs> who's bringing us down <laughs> it's James isn't it <laughs> okay so uh, as a church um, it, you know to think about where we're you know our, how are we doing in terms of, of doctrinal fidelity um, you know we seem to be holding the truths of 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 Christianity. Yeah, that, um, uh, you know, uh, I was showing up, um, the American Historical Association was here um, two weeks ago, and um, I had a friend from college, and we were showing him around, and, you know, I was like... It, he came to eat our house, so we went by, um, came through West Concord, and, and you know, went past Harvey Wheeler. It's like, that's where we worship. He's like, well, the church must be really new if you're worshiping in a temporary space. I was like, nope, <laughs> been here a while. You know, we've changed spaces over the years, but, and I think that's you know, churches that don't have a permanent home, you know, there's got to be a certain amount of energy and perseverance in order to uh, keep that church going. Um, so. That, that might be another one in our plus column. Mary. Oh, I knew you would. No. <laughs> yeah, I remember talking with one of my coworkers and sort of um, you know they sort of uh, we were talking about some church activity or something and sort of I was really expressing. It was right when I first came and just sort of how you know I came uh, or our family came and it was like instant community because of the relations of Christ, you know, I had, I had no family in Massachusetts, but I had family in Massachusetts, you know, you know, Ben and I still sort of, um, you know, tell people about, you know, the day our truck pulled in front of our house and, you know, this wave, you know, being overwhelmed by the gratitude we have for, for this wave of people that came and emptied that truck, um. You know, I have images of Bill McCallie carrying things that I thought were entirely too heavy for Bill McCallie to be carrying. But you know, um, but to to think of of that, and you know, in that conversation, I I started thinking there is no, you know, what it's like. What was like for me not to have that community? To think of, you know, back when I did feel so alone. You and had no one to turn to other than real family. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's easy for us to forget all the kind of benefits that we take for granted that the world around us doesn't have, and the benefit of Christ being chief of that. The you know to um, and I'm I, I'm the same way to sort of to think about this message which whose power. Uh, whose truth is so demonstrable in my experience, why do I not translate that um, to the people around me? Um, because, I, and again, it's not, we're not going to be able to rationalize or objectively prove someone into the kingdom of heaven. Um, but at the same time, we know it's true. Um, and we've experienced it's true. It makes sense to us, but even more so, we know it to be true. Um, So why don't we more fervently communicate that truth? And and part of that, you know, again, is for us moving from a very different kind of cultural um, context to this cultural context. I mean, that's, you know, that's different. um, You know, about living in a place that is uh, anti-Christian in so many ways that you start... know, pulling that head, you know, sort of imagine us as turtles sort of pulling receding inward. Um, All right, Mark, and then we'll close for a day. Yeah? Um, I I worshipped at Park Street when A.J. was in Boston. So, um, and coming out of the church that morning, I was hit by five panhandlers. You know, so, I mean, you can see how people do become sort of cynical to the poor when they're like sort of, alright, this is church, they're supposed to be giving, let's, you know, Especially when you live in the right now. knock on your door, this is church, they'll give us, and, you know, that's how, you know. Um, but, so this sort of, we're torn between the cynicism toward the poor on the one hand, and the heart for the poor we're supposed to have on the other. All right, we'll keep thinking about what Christ's letter to uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church looks like, um, and next week we'll turn to some of the churches that have been compromising, um, some of the churches that are uh, really um, trying to, uh, to take on aspects of the culture so they do sort of blend in and don't stick out as much. But let me close this prayer. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you that you are a God in our midst. That we have uh, Christ today born by the power of your spirit. You've promised to us where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are also. So we praise you, Jesus Christ, for being in our midst and uh, um, teaching us. And we ask that you would help us take these words to heart and we would take that same power that your gospel has delivered to us and um, be faithful in our witness to the world around us Uh, strengthen us um, by feeding us through your word and at the table this day that we would have um, the the joy of, of being fed in in your word but also feeding on your body and being united together as the body of the living christ in whose name we pray amen